So um, we will be reading the final part of the book of Colossians. Uh, so Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. Uh, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find that on page 1806, or at least begins there. So um, picking up, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans and see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Down in the valley, there is a very interesting restaurant that is called Organ Stop Pizza. Now, what they are known for is probably not their pizza. Instead, it is their organ. Uh, they claim to have the world's largest theater pipe organ. So it's one of those organs that was built for the theater. And it would dominate the end view with really tall pipes. And those kinds of organs are powered by air. And so in the old days, they would actually have somebody all the time manning a pump or maybe even more than one person, depending on the size and scale of the organ. And Organ Stop Pizza has one of those organs, and it truly is huge. Um, so the, the organ is on a, on, a, on a platform that's raised toward the end uh, inside of a two-story room that has this wraparound balcony, and seating is everywhere throughout. They cram people in. Um, and the organ actually rises up out of the platform, and it pivots back and forth so you can see. And there are, there are four sets of keys on it that wrap around the operator and foot pedals. And in addition to that, there are four rows of toggle switches. And what those toggle switches are is they have taken the air that powers this organ and have piped it to almost innumerable other instruments. And so there are, there are more than 80 instruments that are connected to this organ, and as I understand it, over 20 percussion 
uh, instruments. So, so there are xylophones attached to this organs. There are trumpets that are attached to this organs. There are tom-toms. There are, there are bird whistles. There are clarinets. There are trumpets. There's a piano that is also powered through this organ. And the amazing thing is, is that this complete array of instrumentation is at the fingertips of one operator. Well, including his feet as well. Okay, and that's the reason why people go to Organ Stop Pizza, because it is truly phenomenal. Um, you've heard of a one-man band. Well, this is a one-man orchestra. And it is, it is truly incredible. They actually uh, take requests, and they'll play them. And the caliber of execution of those songs is almost unbelievable. And the number of instruments, and you can see them, lined up on the walls to the back, two stories worth of instruments. And then they actually wrap a little bit on the walls. And you can see these drums get operated uh, by air currents uh, that, are, that are pumped from the organ. And uh, so all the musical scores that you can think of, uh, of course, Phantom at the Opera is a, is a very a popular number that people ask for. And they don't only have one set of organ pipes, they have a number. And it's amazing to watch this, okay? And that's the reason why people go to Oregon Stop Pizza. But if you do, um, you stand there or you sit there and you say, this truly is phenomenal. As he rattles off something, I don't know, from Star Wars or Sound of Music. And you say to yourself, are you sure this is legit? Are you sure that one person is doing all of this? Well, in order to convince you that it's true and legit, you get to see. You get to see all of it happen, and including at the very bottom, there, uh, there, the, at the very bottom of the wall, there are windows that open up, and they actually look into the pumps room, where they have a number, four huge pumps that are constantly delivering the air, and you see this network of, of pipes traveling about as they travel to each instrument, and they're, they're vibrating. You can actually see and, and feel the music that is coming out of this. You know, sometimes you need something like that when something just sounds too good to be true. You actually need to see it. And I'm going to suggest to you that our passage today does exactly that for the book of Colossians. You see, Paul has gone through and he has taught amazing and deep truth about the glories of the gospel and the majesty of Jesus Christ and what it provides for the church. And it sounds so good that it sounds too good to be true. And today's passage, which looks like a bunch of personal comments, I'm going to suggest to you is like looking into the window of the pump room. And uh, so if you don't believe me, travel with me. There are three important things that I believe are going on here. And so uh, let me upfront them to you. The personal comments in Colossians in, inform us about the church and the gospel by giving us insight into the depth of church community the nature of church instruction, and the need for church endurance. Now, the, the first part of it is, is this. 
The personal comments in Colossians inform us about the depth of church community. And, and so the, the first thing is the obvious. Let's look at how personal this is. Look, look at how many names there are and how Paul refers to them very naturally. Um, look at all the compliments additionally that are given. Tychicus is not just a brother. He is a beloved brother, Onesimus. He's faithful and beloved. And what's more, he's one of you. Paul recognizes Onesimus comes from the Colossian church. Okay, Paul describes something about each person as he goes. And this gives us a look into how intimately connected Paul is to the brothers and sisters who are, who are in the faith. Okay, Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner with Paul at the moment that this letter is written. Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Uh, Aris, uh, sorry, um, Jesus goes by the name of Justice. Epaphras is also one of the Colossians himself, and Epaphras sends his greetings as well, and he is hard at work on their behalf. Here we learn that Luke is a physician. Um, Demas is the only one that Paul gives no comment concerning. But there is a, a woman named Nympha, and this woman hosts a whole church in her home. In Archippus, he gets special attention since Paul asks the entire church to encourage him. And finally, Paul also mentions, I am writing this with my own hand. Now, all these ways, all these things are ways of, of uh, talking very personally. Uh, in fact, I'll say Paul draws special attention to this by that, by that phrase, I'm writing with my own hand. This letter arrived there in his own handwriting. Often letters back in those days would be written at dictation, and I understand that the practice was that the person taking the dictation would very frequently compose his own ending. And, and here Paul is saying, that has not happened. I have composed my own ending. This is in my own handwriting. And that indicates how, how personally connected he, he care for that he has, sorry, the care that he has for the Colossian church. Um, but it also means all these comments about these people, those come from me. They come directly from me. Okay, um, now I believe that this kind of community whirls out of the deep truths of the gospel. So, uh, in other words, I believe that good theology, sound doctrine concerning the gospel, serves to create good community. And, and, and what I'm going to say is that I've just skimmed over a whole list of people, but it runs much deeper than this surface. Uh, we should understand that there's a lot more going on here than a group of people that are eager to exchange greetings to one another. We should not be surprised that the relationships in the church can reflect the beauty of the gospel that created the church. So we're going to look a little deeper still. And let me, let me first draw your attention to Onesimus. And we see him in verse 9. And it's it's really special to see him listed here because we do have more information about Onesimus. Um, there is a letter in the Bible called Philemon. And uh, it's right after Titus. 
and before Hebrews, and it's the shortest letter that is in the New Testament. And we don't know all of the details from reading this letter, but we do know some important matters. So Paul actually is pleading to a man named Philemon concerning Onesimus. Now, while we don't know all the details, what you can get from that letter is that Onesimus is a slave who belongs to Philemon. And at minimum, Onesimus greatly offended Philemon. At maximum, Onesimus ran away. And in, in the letter, whatever the case that is, Paul is sending Onesimus back to his master. And he's also interceding on his behalf. Um, as a matter of fact, Paul mentions this. He says, formerly Onesimus was useless to you. He even suggests that Onesimus may have stolen from Philemon. Now, you should know that sending Onesimus back was very risky for Onesimus. Now, Roman law would have required it had he been a runaway slave. Uh, so Paul would have had to obey the law and send him back. But there was absolutely zero legal protection for a slave, whatever. And so masters who are displeased with their slaves often, uh, often executed. Um, and, and so Paul loves Onesimus. He actually says Onesimus has become a believer. Um, in, in that letter, he indicates that, and he knows Philemon is a letter. So he sends Onesimus back, and he pleads for Onesimus. As a matter of fact, the, what's interesting is that the word Onesimus means useful. And Paul says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful not only to me, but you as well. So please receive him back in that spirit. And what's more, Paul pleads, that Philemon set him free. Hmm. So when Onesimus is mentioned in our book of Colossians, it looks like Philemon decided to do exactly that. Because of the gospel and the change that it had wrought in maybe all of their lives, Onesimus is set free. And here he is, a, and he uses his freedom to serve in the church now, that is really cool, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that kind of powerful? And it gets a little bit even deeper yet, although it's still speculative. Uh, there, there's a man toward the end of our, of our, of our chapter um, whose name is Archippus. And Archippus is talked about in that book of Philemon. Paul writes to Philemon, and then he mentions a woman, and then he mentions Archippus. And the structure of that is sure looks like Paul is addressing the whole household, which would mean that Archippus is a son of Philemon. <laughs> and then here in our text, you have both Onesimus and Archippus working side by side in the cause of the gospel. What a powerful change that the gospel has wrought and that you can see. So this is what I mean that the community runs deep. This isn't just a, a superficial community that you have here. And we might not have all the details, but one thing I will tell you is that because Onesimus was from Colossae, that church knew all of the details. And they could see the beauty of this community on full display in that way. So, so that's what I mean, that church community created by the gospel runs deep. 
You see, in Colossians 2, verse 11, Paul taught earlier in this book that there is no difference between slave and free. And now you see Paul practicing what he preached. As a matter of fact, I say that deliberately because it sure looks to me like this situation was changed by Paul intervening. Do you realize that it might not have happened had not Paul took the initiative to write about this situation and to plea on Onesimus' behalf? And so sometimes the, the changes that are so wrought by the gospel are not made simply by a community that stands out. They are actually brought about by, by a community that stands up. And we can see the fruit that was so uh, created. But there is more evidence of community in our text that I'd like to, to uh, point out to you. And we notice that Paul mentions a man named Mark, and that's in verse 10. Now here it is uh, mentioned that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. But we also know more about Mark and Barnabas from the book of Acts. And um, see, in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas had an argument over Mark, over this Mark. Um, and so Mark had started off with them on a missionary journey, and then he bailed. It looks like he flaked out. And she got to a certain point and said, maybe I'm not cut out from this. And anyways, he left. And from that point forward, uh, well, sorry, in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas want to go on a trip again. And Barnabas says, let's take Mark. And Paul says, eh, I don't think that's a good idea. But let's read that in, in Acts 15. Um, it says, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. And that was Acts uh, 15. 37 through 40. And with that in mind, what Paul says here is very significant. Can you see this? Um, it's very evident that Mark had indeed changed. Mark no longer flaked out. Okay? And so Mark had probably grown to be more reliable, but what's more, you see that Paul recognized it. Um, and so uh, Paul becomes very supportive of Mark saying, if he comes to you, welcome him. And even more than that, he says, you have already received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so Mark, in, in Paul's mind, is now a very valuable team player. So don't treat him like a flake. I wonder if word had gotten around about Mark and that there was this division over Mark. And so now Paul is fighting for Mark. He's saying, if he comes to you, Welcome him. Receive him. He's valuable. Um, so I'm going to just say this. It is appropriate for Christian community to involve discernment. It is appropriate to, to assess what is good for someone to be uh, doing at his or her stage in their Christian growth and walk as a believer. Okay? And it is good to recognize when somebody is ready and to so put them to work. Okay? Um, Paul had mentioned earlier in, in chapter 128 that one of his goals is to present everyone complete and mature in Christ. 
And Paul is recognizing maturity in Mark. There's more on community even yet. And so in verses 10 through 11, Paul draws attention to the three men who are working with him who are Jewish. And um, it's sort of, he has an interesting way of saying it. Uh, they are the only men of the circumcision. And what he means, they're the only ones who have the Jewish roots, who, who had started off following the, the Jewish law. Okay? And that means that the rest of the people are Gentiles that are, that are in his company. Paul is 100% okay with that. And he's even taught that earlier in the book. There is no difference between Greek or Jew. And he's living it out. But what's also interesting is that it's still okay to say, and these guys are an extra special comfort to me. And that can be true of a church. The church ought to draw people from, a, from all groups. And there is no difference between Greek or Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But it is okay to have a spot where your comfort zone really clicks with these people. And it's okay for Paul to mention that to, to the church. So on the one hand, He's showing, I only have three guys who are Jews working with me in the list of all these others. But they are a special comfort with me. There's more yet. Another look into this community is found in, in verse 15. And, and there Paul asks that the whole church extends greetings to another church. And the way that he says it, I believe, is neat. Uh, I'm going to tell you that it's special. Um, so Laodicea was a city about 10 miles away, and I would, I would guess it's likely that these sh believers rub shoulders on occasion. And uh, it's um, evident from what Paul says that he had written another letter to the church in Laodicea, right? Um, and, and yet, in Paul's mind, that's not enough. You know, Paul could have brought greetings himself simply to the Laodiceans in his letter. Do you think that he forgot to do that? So he's asking the Colossian church to make up the difference? No, I don't think so. He is encouraging you, church, be sure that you are greeting and extending greetings to this other church. And, uh, and, and that's instructive, I believe, uh, for us as we live in a city with many other churches in it. But there's, there's more here as well because immediately Paul also zeroes in. Uh, so he uses a generic word first. He says, greet the brothers. And the, the term Adelphi there, when it's used generically, means brothers and sisters. So he's not just saying greet only the brothers. He's, he's saying greet the whole church um, all, all together. But then he dials in and he says, and to Nympha and the church that is in her house. Now, this is interesting because it says Nympha, the church in her house. If you have an older translation, it might say Nymphis and the church in his house. And some of the early Greek manuscripts actually go both ways. This one says her, this one says his. So there's a little bit of disagreement uh, about that. Um, but the more modern translations usually go with Nympha, the church in her house. Without getting technical, I think that that's correct. Usually, when you have that, that kind of an issue in the Greek manuscripts, the more unusual one is more likely to have been the original the original way that it was. And, and, and if so, then Paul is doing something here unusual. In this huge list of guy, 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 and greet Nympha, the church that is in her house. And he's drawing a special attention to a woman. Now, it is true that the New Testament often offends our culture with its teaching 
um, especially how sometimes it reserves some important leadership roles for men in the church. But it does not exclude women from being very, very significant. And Nympha was probably a wealthy woman. In those days, they didn't have church buildings. So you either met outside or you met in someone's home. And usually the person with the biggest home, everyone would be hoping that that person would say, hey, why don't we meet here? And that probably meant that she was hosting the entire church because she had a big house. Being a, being a prominent woman then, uh, she would have been a person of influence. And that was actually fairly common in the early days of, of the church. And Paul is saying, greet her too. And I'll just mention this. I think Paul is doing something atypical of culture. Because if you noticed, he is instructing the Colossian church, you church, greet those in Laodicea and Nympha, the church in her house. And that means that Paul is instructing men in the church of Colossae to greet a woman. And that is actually really important and really valuable. If you are going to communicate, we are one in Christ, (laughs) you need to be able to greet one another as if you are. One last aspect of Christian community is that Christian community is transparent. We get a strong dose of this in verses 7 through 9. We, we see that Tychicus and Onesimus are going to give a report about Paul. And Paul actually hasn't disclosed very much about himself personally in this letter. We know that he's in prison. Okay, We know that he's rejoicing about the Colossian church. But the personal details about Paul, he has withheld from writing in the letter, and he's, he's conveying it through Onesimus and Tychicus. And this is something important, I believe, because it's clear that Paul is not operating with the inner circle approach to leadership. Paul is instructing these guys, tell the entire church everything that is going on here. And, and that is a transparent model of of leading in the church. It's not withholding information. The church leaders want to hear everything, but so do everyone else in the entire church. And it's a corporate enterprise that is on display here. And um, that also is is valuable because it indicates that Paul solidly, um, his communication pattern solidly will not tell one thing to one person and something else to another. He communicates the same thing to all, and I would say that that is being transparent. No one is kept in the dark. There's there's no hidden agenda. And Paul reinforces this further by how he speaks of this guy Epaphras. In verse 13, um, he says, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And so the, the ministry of this one man, Uh, Epaphras was benefiting three other cities. And Paul wanted the church to understand and to value that. And so Paul says, I bear him witness. And this means that Paul himself is underwriting what Epaphras has done based on his own testimony. I have seen what this guy is doing. And Paul is just shooting straight. He would not recommend Epaphras like this or commend him in that way if Epaphras was flaky. But Epaphras is not, and Paul shoots straight with the church. And these are ways that you develop a community of trust by modeling transparency. 
So I'll say that when we see the depth of Paul's teaching and it's coupled with the fact that he was living that teaching out, it shouldn't be a surprise that the gospel created a rich church community that had depth, that reflected the beauty of the gospel. But there's something further that we ought to consider, and it's this. The personal comments in Colossians inform us about the nature of church instruction. We notice that in verse 16, there is a special instruction that is given. He says this, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the, in the church of the Laodiceans, and see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So the two cities, 10 miles apart, are instructed to read each other's letters. Why do you suppose Paul might have done that? Well, I think there's a number of reasons but something really beneficial spins out of this. Uh, if you pay attention to Paul, you might notice that he sometimes phrases things a little confusing. And I wouldn't be surprised if um, Paul was aware of that. And it, by exchanging letters and being able to read the other letters, the other church could see how Paul talked about maybe the similar subject, but maybe in different words. And you could use one letter to help you understand yet another letter. And by exchanging these, so you not only saw this is how Paul talked to them, this is how Paul talked to them, um, you got to understand the whole of Paul's teaching much better. I hope that makes sense. And if something was confusing, you might be able to find how it's, it's actually explained more thoroughly. Okay, so this set in motion a number of things. So number one, churches everywhere began exchanging letters. Letters began to be collected in churches, and this is simply how we ended up with the New Testament. <laughs> Huge collections of the documents that the apostles wrote. We have them, and we share, and we distribute them. Thousands and thousands of manuscripts are, are, are preserved around because of this practice. But in terms of Bible study, this, this, this brings out very, uh, two very important principles. And number one is, use the Bible to help you understand the Bible. Use the Bible to help you understand the Bible. When, when something is confusing in one area, often you can actually find more in the Bible that will help you understand it better. And what Paul says here, set that in motion. The other thing that it puts in motion is use all of the Bible. Use all of Scripture. Don't just dial in and this is my favorite thing. Paul says, read the letter to the Laodiceans as well. It's important too. I don't have time to develop that any further, but um, those are really significant things that Paul has encouraged right here. But looking at church instructions, uh, the instruction of the church also should cause us to look more carefully at Epaphras. He's found in verses 12 and 13. And we notice that Paul commends him highly for the quality of his prayers and for working hard. And we should not be surprised that these things go hand in hand and that Christian maturity is the goal of this working hard. And, and so at the very start of the book of Colossians, we learned that Epaphras actually planted this church. Paul had not. And uh, Paul describes him there. He says, our beloved servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. In our passage, we notice that he also is from Colossae. So that means that Epaphras took the gospel and planted a church in his own hometown. 
in that letter to Philemon. Epaphras is also mentioned there. And there Paul mentions that Epaphras and Paul are together in prison. Uh, with all this in view, it's, it's, it's very natural to understand Epaphras looks a lot like the other guys who worked with Paul. So if you want to know what Epaphras is up to, you can use the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus to say that's, that's probably what, what, what Epaphras' ministry looked like. He's, a, he's one of these satellite guys who works in the company of Paul, and we have two letters of how Paul talked and how Paul trained them. And uh, so you can actually see a little bit further and deeper the objectives of what Epaphras is doing. Okay, this will help us understand the fervency of his prayers and the labor that he gives on behalf of the church. In Titus 2 verse 1, Paul says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That means sound teaching. It means teaching that's true, that conforms to the gospel and to the revelation of the scriptures. Paul then describes a little bit how that looks, uh, given person to person, and how that played out in the church. But then he picks up very again, the reason for teaching sound doctrine is listed in uh, verses 11 through 14. Paul starts by saying, for. The reason is grace. God has sent his grace. Therefore, teach sound doctrine. Listen. Uh, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And we see here that The grace of God has come, and this is the grace that brings salvation. What is grace? Well, it's undeserved favor. It's not a a wage. Grace is something that someone bestows, especially to someone who is undeserving, who is deserving of something else, deserving of punishment. Instead, they're given grace. This grace has appeared, and it has brought salvation. You see that. But... In this very text, grace continues forward. And what does it continue forward into? The same grace that has brought salvation also instructs. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Okay, so the, 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 the same grace does these things. And we also see when he, he zeroes in on Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to accomplish two things who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And what do those people look like? They are zealous for good works. So the very same grace that saves is the same grace that calls to set into motion a lot of activity, a lot of growth in in Christianity, and it's all by grace. Uh, This is why sometimes we say, by God's grace, I am growing. (laughs) We don't claim credit for it. It's his work that has accomplished even our ability to grow at all. And so this is how God's grace sets people to work. And I believe this is why Epaphras is so fervent. He cannot let go of praying for the Colossian church. And so Paul sees him, and that's why he bears witness. He's always laboring in prayer for you. And Paul commends his ministry because his ministry is centered on 
helping the church grow into maturity. Let me just let me just mention that it is commendable to seek the maturity of other believers. That is what Paul does with Epaphras here. For Christians, then, grace is a deep, deep thing. We are saved by grace, and so we need to live by grace. And that's, by, that's why, by God's grace, we seek to help each other grow in grace. Now, last, very quickly, this closing comment section is a look into the need for church endurance as well. So let me direct your attention to verse 17. It says, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill your ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, say, Paul saves this almost for the very last, and that actually makes it stand out a, a lot. Um, I, I would like you to see this as Paul encouraging a church to encourage Archippus. And the Bible doesn't specifically tell us what exactly was this work. I will tell you that my hunch is it looked a lot like Epaphras. Um, my guess is that Archippus um, was saying, I would be willing to help fill church need roles while Epaphras is away. Okay, and that's my guess. My guess also is that Epaphras is young. Uh, sorry, uh, Archippus. Remember, Archippus might have been that son of Philemon. Uh, earlier, and that meant that he would have been a younger person who was growing, and he had seen the gospel at work, and he's aspiring into ministry, and so he's being tested (laughs) right here. Uh, Epaphras is away. He's working on other churches, and Archippus is tasked with maintaining some things, some responsibilities in the church, Um, and he's there, and Paul says, tell him, fulfill your work in the Lord, and it's just my hunch. If that's the case, Paul has learned a lot from that story about Mark. And Paul is not shying away from people who are young and people who are untested. Instead, he's more careful about how you deploy them and how you test them, and he wants Archippus to be set up for success. One way that you do that is you set him up for encouragement, and another way you do that is you set him up for accountability because Archippus will have an entire church checking up on him. Hmm. Paul talks very differently about Archippus here. You know, earlier, he's given all these compliments. You know, here's a beloved, faithful brother. And you can see that they're, they're tried and true. They're tested. They're like people that, as if it was a, you know, a, a, a fire crew or something like that. These are guys that I've already labored with, labored, labored with. Tell Archippus, though, fulfill your work. <laughs> Archippus shows the marks of being someone green. So I believe that Paul is encouraging the church to encourage Archippus. I think that's instructive uh, for us. Um, This is all the more sobering then when we understand that someone in our list of names did not finish well. So Paul is wanting people to see they see them finish well. It's, a, it's actually a, a Christian life, is a, a faithfulness, is not an easy life. And there's all this encouragement for Archippus to endure, to finish. But one person in our list of names we know did not. That's in verse 14. Right after mentioning Luke, Paul mentions Demas. 
Demas is someone that we also see in other letters. Demas is called uh, one of Paul's fellow workers in the book of Philemon. But in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, Paul mentions something that's heartbreaking. Paul says this, For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And what Paul says here and the way that he says it is very grim. See, this is worse than when Mark stopped traveling with Paul and Barnabas back in Acts 13. When, Paul, when Timothy would have received that letter and read it, I think he would have, his heart would have sank. And especially the way that Paul phrases this. So just earlier, Paul is referring to himself in 2 Timothy, and Paul believes that the end of his life is coming. He's on trial, and it looks like he is going to be executed. And so he's handing things off. But he says this concerning himself. Um, and so this is um, uh, 2 uh, Timothy. Um, oh, gosh, it's just before. Uh, so it would be just before. It might be verse 8. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, I believe. Paul says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. He says this, Not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. That's a strong thing. Those who have loved God's appearing, the Lord's appearing, and they're eager for that, to see that. And then one and a half verses later, Paul says, Demas loved the present world. Can you see the contrast that Paul is is drawing there? So Demas didn't just simply back away. He really checked out. A man who had worked and labored alongside of Paul. Hmm. We do not know what became of Demas, but to bring it back to our text... This is why there is a need for church endurance. Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25 say, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't want to be a Demas. And so I want you to encourage me I don't want you to be a Demas, and that calls me to encourage you. So I think that we've benefited a lot from this look into the window of the church. We've we've seen how it is designed to powerfully reflect the gospel of grace that created the church and also sustains it, that saves believers and that grows them. And we've seen some of its depth of community. We've been exposed to the nature of its instruction. And uh, we've also seen its need and calling to endure. So let us pray that if someone so looked into our church, they would see the same things. So the personal comments in the book of Colossians inform us about the church and the gospel uh, that, that gave it birth by giving us insight into the depth of the church community, to the nature of church instruction, and the need for church endurance. Paul closes with three short statements. 
That this closing was written by his own hand indicates how personally he is vested in the Colossian church. And the statement where he says, remember my change doesn't mean to feel sorry for Paul, but rather to take seriously what he has said, for it has come at a cost. And finally, grace be with you. Remember that for Christians, grace runs deep. God's grace is not only a saving grace, it is a transforming grace. And so a fitting blessing for Christians to say is grace be with you. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to be a church and a people that reflect the majesty of your gospel in its transforming grace and power that we would not neglect to meet together. And as we do meet together, we would be eager to greet one another and encourage each other in the faith, that our relationships would run deep, that our submission uh, to your instruction would also be very willing and open, and that our endurance would hold true, uh, so that we might be a church that reflects we were saved by him and unreservedly lives for him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.